who is excited for this episode with Vlad. I am stoked when we had this conversation. I was having so many insights and I'm excited for you to hear. But before we get into it, um, I have a a big announcement. Uh, I'm announcing that the Forward Thinking Founders podcast is launching a subscription tier. We're calling it Angel Invest in Forward Thinking Founders. And what this does is a couple of things. For $10 a month or for $100 a year, you would get the following things if you become an angel investor. One, all of the content will be advertisement free. You'll never hear my voice promoting anything ever again. <laughs> you'll get premium content. You'll get some content that, that the listeners who aren't paying you know, don't get access to. Uh, you'll also get access to our our, uh, our private community online, and you'll get access to invites to any meetup that we do all around the world. Our first meetup being in San Francisco in late January. So if you want to meet some of the guests who've been on the podcast, um, then become an angel investor. Check out glow.fm slash F20R to check out the page to become an angel investor. As I said, it's $10 a month or $100 a year, and it really supports me on my effort to bring all the greatest founders I can find to you. So if you want you know, to, to, to better community for this podcast, or you want no ads, or you just want to support me, I hope to see you on the other side of that and have you become an angel investor. Thank you so much for supporting. Now with that, let's get into the show. All right, it is here, what you've all been waiting for, my conversation with Vlad Magdalene, who is the CEO of Webflow. In this conversation, we go all over the place. We go from the origin stories of Webflow to the rise of no code and why did it happen today and not five years ago, not five years from now. We talk about uh, Webflow's big Series A and how they chose that $72 million number. We talk about how Vlad handles the critics of the no code movement and you know so many other topics. So if you are interested in Webflow, you're interested in no code, or you're just interested in hearing from awesome founders, you're gonna love this. So without further ado, here is Vlad from Webflow. Here we go. Vlad, welcome to the show. How's it going? Hey, Matt. Uh, I'm doing really great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on, and I'm very much looking forward to jamming all things Webflow and NoCode. And with that, let's just kind of jump right in. For people that don't know what Webflow is, uh, what is it? What are you working on? Uh, Webflow is um, a bit of a new thing. We we like to think we're creating a new category. We call it visual software development. So Webflow is a way to build software visually. Um, and we apply it many different ways uh, in, in one way to building websites uh, that are graduating, becoming more and more complex and becoming closer to applications. Um, but we did start as a, uh, a WYSIWYG landing page builder and have graduated into this more sophisticated way to build things that are much more complicated than just websites. Um, and the way, the way to, to think about it sometimes is to kind of marry the, the visual graphic side of Photoshop to the complexity of a code base or a CMS or something like that, all brought together in a nice package that uh, a designer or a business user, uh, somebody that doesn't know how to code can use to get um, something up and running and scale it. 
So let's go a little deeper into that. So I think a lot of people listening, when they think of website builder, they might be thinking in their head of like a Wix or mm -hmm. a Squarespace or a Weebly, this like kind of level that has dominated maybe the last decade. Um, but right. Webflow is kind of adds a few pretty complex and, and really important layers on top of that. Can you kind of go into um, what Webflow adds on to the stack and what you're able to do with Webflow that you can't do with some of these other tools that have been around? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's why we call it a visual software development platform um, that is a lot closer to the types of things people do with code. Um, so with all those other other site builders that you mentioned, they're kind of more cookie cutter in the sense that you pick a template. Um, it's very, very easy in the sense that uh, you can add some images, move some text around, maybe uh, add some pages that have a specific template. Um, it's faster, but it's also really uh, not flexible, right? You can kind of tell when something's made from a template. Uh, whereas like real, uh, you know, scaling companies and startups and um, brands that want to tell a story and have their own custom uh, sort of website experience and uh, way to target customers, et cetera, they need something that's their own. And typically what happens is they bring in developers and those developers write like custom HTML and CSS and JavaScript to, to bring that to reality. And Webflow is an abstraction over HTML, JavaScript, and CSS. So it's all the power or the vast majority of the power of those three technologies uh, brought into a visual language. So uh, all the kinds of things you sort of can think of Webflow as a non-templated uh, site builder or application builder where you're not starting. Um, you can, but typically people don't start from a template. It, they're kind of building their vision um, into reality and we have a set of tools that makes that possible so we have a um, a different way to think about coding uh, you can almost say that you're, you're almost like developing and writing code but you're doing that through um, uh, an abstraction almost like saying you know I'm turning the wheel uh, of a car and that's you know, turning all these levers and, and gears to turn the actual wheels. Um, but you have this like much neater interface to, to make that happen. Uh, so we think of Webflow in a, in a similar way of um, <clears throat> breaking down the core components of software or websites where you have like a database, right? Typically you would write like SQL or My, MySQL or a GraphQL and all these things to set up the database or the CMS. And then you have your front end, you might write like React or Vue or jQuery or Angular to like pull in data from, from that database into your, into your dynamic website. Uh, Webflow just abstracts all that away and still has those core capabilities of making super custom data models, super custom layouts, uh, just in a completely visual way. So the, the way that I sometimes compare it is if those site builders that were sort of like the last generation um, were closer to iMovie, you know, like anybody could use it to cut a movie, et cetera. Webflow is a lot more like Final Cut Pro or After Effects where anything is possible. Like the, the top professionals are using it, like wedding photographers are using it, but, but you can also have like a prosumer or somebody that's just wanting to learn that industry uh, and practice that skill, learn it pretty quickly, a lot quicker than you know, a four-year computer science degree or like a nine-month or 18-month boot camp. Um, so it is more sophisticated, but it also brings a lot more power, the power of development into a, like a graphical user interface. So I'd love to dive in the timeline of what has happened in the last seven years uh, since this, you got this company started. Um, and what I really want to focus on is at some point in, in the last seven years, you realized that there, you know, there was an opportunity or you created the opportunity um, for people that don't know how to code um, to 
to, to build things that, that, that previously only developers could code um, or could create. So I have a couple questions in, in this realm. Was this your vision from the get in 2012? And if not, at what point did you realize like, holy shit, like look at what we could do, look at what we could build. And then if once you had that insight, did you shift the product direction at all? I'd love to kind of an insight into that. Yeah, so the insight was from the beginning um, because I it actually happened a lot earlier than 2012. I started the first version of Webflow in 2000, late 2004, 2005, um, and was sort of the basis of my senior project. And it, it was always this idea of here I am as a developer doing this stuff that's repetitive um, that I can imagine a visual abstraction uh, to um, to, to doing that same workflow. Initially, it started as a backend thing. Like, um, uh, if you're familiar with Ruby on Rails, there's like tools that developers have that make it easier for them to build applications. So my first idea was more around like, how do you make the, that backend application easier? But in 2012, when we started this the latest iteration of Webflow, when I started with um, my brother, another co-founder, um, it was that insight already of like, here's Sergi, my brother, who's a designer, and he's doing the creative work, like developing, uh, you know, a solution with customers, like really diving into, uh, you know, what kind of website or project that we want to build, doing like all the unique work, right? And I'm kind of repeating that same work over and over of translating that vision or that Photoshop file into, uh, you know, a WordPress template or something like that or a WordPress theme uh, and doing that through code. So that insight and it, like, and, and there's a bunch of problems there because like what Sergi imagined as like the interaction or the animation or the design, I'd constantly be saying like, no, you can't do that. Or, uh, that would take too long or that's not possible. Or like you would make all these tweaks by sending like PDF files across. Uh, so it, it was obvious back then that it was just like an inefficient process. Um, and we knew from back then that you know that's what we wanted to build the the scope of what how how far we wanted to go uh expanded as we kept building the company and saw what people were building with it and then seeing like oh shoot like we need to add animation and we need to add content management and we need to add commerce then we need to add um you know a bunch of other uh tangential functionality but the original idea was kind of the same like why why aren't we doing this in a more direct manipulation kind of way uh and and sort of re uh, you know, having this mental model around having to look at a code base and looking at the thing that you actually created and see if that's what you meant, having to go back to the code and like flip-flopping between the two, it just felt very inefficient. Do you feel like, uh, you know, I mean, you've had this vision now for, for a while then, but from my perspective, and I'm not in the industry of building no code tools, so I could be, I, I guess I'm in the position of most people who aren't building for the builders, but I've seen a, um, a, the perfect storm in a good way in the last three years of tons of makers discovering tools to build uh, different no-code platforms. There's the conference that you started, which we'll get into in a second. There's, you know, MakerPad, which has been evangelizing this, you know, for years now. What happened? If you've, like, what happened in the last five years, three years that kind of brought all of it together and... Um, where do you think the movement is going? Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, a bunch of things. Uh, this the, the idea of building software visually is not new, right? Like Visual Studio, uh, Power Build. There's so many different things that even people try to get going in the 80s and 90s. And you can go as far back as like the 50s where there's like the mother of all demos that showed 
kind of a more direct manipulation approach. Um, but a lot of the attempts sort of fizzled out. Or uh, if you think back in the early uh, 2000s when Dreamweaver was really possible, like this, it was sort of like treated as a um, as a as a given that those tools are going to develop and, and mature. Uh, but the outcome of Dreamweaver becoming popular was actually more negative. So a lot of people, a lot of developers had a you know, they saw that it generated suboptimal code and, you know, it was very hard, um, very hard to make, you know, like production sites with it that were were able to scale and be fast, et cetera. So it sort of like created this, this idea that, you know, like the best attempts are behind us. And a lot of people uh, stopped looking at this space as a possibility. It's sort of like a, you know, something to explore, but there's not a big opportunity there because somebody as big as Adobe failed. Um, that's a, a market leader, et cetera. It's almost like you could say that there were all these search engines in the late 90s, uh, and the uh, main assumption was that search was a solved problem, and there's not a big opportunity there before Google came along. Um, so I think the, there's a couple combinations of things that, that caused um, this to sort of become a re resurging theme. A lot of it is based on uh, you know tools like Webflow being able to prove what's actually possible and showing more by example because you can always say these things. We've been saying this, you know, trying to evangelize this for seven, if not ten, if not fifteen years now. Um, I can point you to my senior project around like the, this being a dream. Um, but the the proof is in the pudding, right? Because you can say like all this stuff is possible, but there's a lot of skepticism that is overridden by counterexamples of like, oh, look, this company launched without code. This company uh, was able to build a, the entire front end of their product without code. This company uh, exists because they were able to validate the idea uh, by putting up something before they had developers, et cetera. Uh, that only comes with social proof, right? And I think, you know, over the, the first four years of Webflow, we were like shipping a lot of things that helped other people ship a lot of things to show that actually is possible especially as companies started building their main marketing sites with Webflow, that's when it like really like um, light bulbs started to go off. Like maybe this is a more efficient way to, to do things. Um, and uh, uh, also one big thing that, that is a, a major factor here is that the web platform became more mature. Uh, so browsers weren't even that powerful to, to be able to create applications within even, uh, you know, eight, eight, 10 years ago, right? We had like Internet Explorer, et cetera. And uh, as Google Maps uh, sort of proved that you can actually build apps inside of, you know, more interactive things than just documents inside the browser, uh, this started sort of this war between, uh, a good war uh, between browsers to like increase performance, to like treat the, a browser more as like an application delivery platform than just like a document uh, sort of like reading consumption uh, platform. So the technology matured too to be able to uh, create tools like this because Webflow wouldn't be possible if browsers weren't, uh, didn't mature to that point. Um, so I think a lot of it is like the mindset of proving to more and more people that yes, this is possible. Before we didn't have that many examples. And at some point there's a tipping point, right? And that's what you're referring to over the last few years where even developers now, you know, daily I'm seeing, you know, developers promoting this kind of uh, the possibility of no code where five years ago was sort of like, this is a joke. This is, you know, uh, this will never work, et cetera. There's still some of that sentiment, but um, more, more and more, the, the proof is showing that that uh, this can really take off. Uh, and in terms of where this could go, like the sky's the limit. It's, it's kind of like trying to imagine where spreadsheets could, what spreadsheets could enable three years into Lotus Notes being a thing, uh, or 
thinking about the web in 1995 or 2000, right? Uh, it's like we're only seeing the early signs of what's possible. Um, a lot of people still think that no code and visual development is a toy, that it's only for, you know, small little projects or whatever. Like this is, we're just scratching the surface. Like we're going to have entire, um, uh, entire companies built to be like billion dollar unicorns or whatever uh, uh, with visual developers um, that are, um, implementing business logic and UIs and database stuff uh, completely without uh, opening a text editor. Uh, who knows where that's going to take us? Like we might even be in a world where like no code tools are built with no code tools. Um, uh, you know, that's sort of the dream. So uh, it's very hard to speak about the future other than to say like how um, inspiring it is already from, from, seeing what people have been able to do even at the early stages of this movement uh, where you know people have transformed like the way their marketing departments work people have transformed how they're validating products um, and and building prototypes and building like turning those prototypes into production applications uh, people have transformed how you know even like you mentioned makerpad right makerpad is built on uh, no-code tools like Webflow. Uh, there's a bunch of other sort of like marketplaces that are now emerging, built on the technologies themselves, promoting the, like making sure that more people are using the technologies because they're so empowering. Like it, it gives a lot of building blocks to people that uh, they can now put at their fingertips without having to rely on somebody else. And that's magical. And that actually for coders, uh, it should also be exciting because each of those things will always have a need for you know, like super, super custom development at some point. Uh, so it's almost like it rises the entire industry of software development by opening it up to a lot more people. Um, and, and coders shouldn't be, you know, scared of something like that because it only increases the demand for uh, like more custom development over time. Yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome. I love that because almost maybe a year and a half ago or so, without realizing this was a whole movement. Um, I just was just playing with Zapier, playing with Airtable, and I put together something that I call, hopefully one day it goes somewhere, called the Watt Stack, which is, at the, at the time, it's actually good. Maybe if you wanted to own it, you totally could, but it was Weebly, uh, Airtable, uh, uh, Typeform, and Zapier, and mm -hmm. we scaled to $25,000 a month just on, on that. Mm -hmm. um, for like 200 bucks a month. And um, by the I, way, it's, that's that that stack is compatible to switching out Weebly to Webflow. That, just yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Well, wink, wink. Yeah. yeah, no, that's what I'm um, because I haven't had a need to build that type of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that thing already. Um, but yeah, it definitely works. And all those other tools I think are in the future. Weebly, like we'll see, but I think Webflow could, is definitely going to overtake a lot of the market share there. So it works. Um, but yeah, I just didn't realize that, that this no code thing was a thing until I was doing it without realizing it. And then I look up and everyone's doing it. Mm -hmm. And you, uh, there's a couple questions I have about no code, but I want to back up a little bit in something that you said that I think is interesting. So you mentioned you, there are a lot of people in the industry back in 2012, even 2005 thought that this market was done. Like the, like the best has been built, nothing more can come. And obviously that's not true clearly, but how does a investor or how more importantly, how does a founder look at a market that they're building in and know that if it is done, like, you know, or if there's a lot more room to run, do you have a methodology on how to think about that? Um, I, I'll be honest with you. It wasn't, um, you know, especially in 2012, there was not just the, not just the assumption that, 
like visual development or sort of like Dreamweaver like WYSIWYG tools were done, uh, the assumption was that the web was dying. Like every investor, every pitch that we did was like, why are you talking about the web? Like mobile is where it's at, you know, look at these curves and look at these, uh, you know, you're sort of working on outdated technologies. Um, so that was a, a challenge for sure. Uh, so if we, if we were to apply a framework to it, like uh, whether it's, you know, industry trends or um, even data around growth rates, et cetera, like all the data would have pointed to probably work on something else in terms of opportunity cost. Uh, but as founders, you know, we, what we really wanted to was solve our own problem. We didn't even imagine this becoming like a, you know, a huge company and a huge movement. It was sort of like, we're building websites for clients for dentists and orthodontists or whatever. And there's all this pain between like the design and developer handoff. Um, and it just seems like there's gotta be a better way. Like it just, we know it's right there and we see that we can uh, kind of point to like uh, some ideas that we have that, that can make this easier for us. And even if we make it easier for us, that's already a better world, right? Like we've created some value. Um, almost originally, I just imagined myself and my brother just like working on this as like an agency, right? Just building more websites and uh, like speeding up ourselves. Um, so it wasn't like this calculated thing of like, how do you pick the right industry and what's going to grow and what's the TAM and what's the uh, market opportunity, et cetera. We were just like chasing this sort of fire in our bellies of, uh, you know, we, we see this better way and we just want to make it happen. Um, and thankfully, um, you know, it's a huge sort of, uh, combination of good timing and privilege and luck uh, and hard work, honestly, that that led to that outcome. But it wasn't like a planned thing. Like, oh, we see this huge opportunity and we're going to prove everyone wrong. And um, it was mostly solving our own problem that we really, really deeply cared about and wanted to do that in a uh, a very thoughtful um, and beautiful way. In a world full of people that are trying to capitalize on opportunities and come on the mercenaries, you're definitely a missionary. And I feel like the best founders, like you just said, uh, are missionaries. They just do something because they want to do it. They don't care what's going on. They just want to build something. And you know, in, their, in your case, it's really working out, which is awesome. And, and that's the beauty of the no-code movement in that it can empower a lot more people to do that without with fewer um, uh, stumbling, like fewer things that are barriers in the way. Because I firmly believe that there are uh, millions, if not tens of millions, if not billions of people that have ideas that they want to get out there, like solve some problem, uh, whether it's like in their short sort of or small circle of, of influence, whether it's down to this something like managing chores at home right or or keeping track of homework or whatever uh through something massively socially impactful um whether it's you know starting a a movement around climate change activism or whatever uh there's so many problems that uh software can solve that once people know that that's a uh something that they have in their toolbox it could be really really impactful because sometimes if you know that you can you know if you have like the power of the platform of twitter right if you know that you can uh, post something and get it into the world or you have the uh the platform of video and on youtube or whatever you can tell a story and get uh people to like really resonate with it just knowing that you have access to that medium gives you power gives you like opportunity to get your uh idea out there uh, or your product or your service or whatever. And, and software is that next step of like bringing something more interactive and more um, uh, kind of that, sol that, that harnesses the power of computing and computers uh, to solve problems for you. Uh, and I think that's, it's only gonna keep 
being more and more inspiring for people as they see more and more examples of what's possible with it. Just the same way that we've seen more examples of code frameworks, right? Like when people realize what Ruby on Rails can do, like people saw, uh, you know, not super experienced founders uh, that were, you know, new programmers build things like Airbnb and GitHub and all these things were because Rails made it easier, right? We had like the Rails tutorial and like millions of developers became develop like created products because that uh, that technology made it easier for them. So um, the no code movement is just like, you know, that times 10, uh, if not times 100, because it, it's just like more uh, fundamentally more accessible. Um, and you don't have to be like super technical coder. Uh, you still have to be technical, you still have to think through like customer problems, you have to think through logic, like, hey, if I have a product that let's say manages chores at home and I click a button that says it's done, there's some sort of like workflow, like that maybe it sends a text message or whatever. This is like, you know, not an app that should probably be built, but just as an idea, you still have to think through technical uh, things um, and you still have to like build the user interface and care about the user and, and uh, do research around like what actually solves a problem. But you don't have to know like syntax and how to like, set up a machine and set up the environment and push code to production and all that stuff like that we can abstract away behind uh, better tooling so a common critique of no code in general um that i had i don't have thoughts on i'm kind of curious to hear yours is that mm -hmm. if you decide to learn no cool tools and, and not learn to code you're yeah. never gonna be able to build something with new technology you're never gonna be able to build something like new like you, you utilizing emerging tech um how do you is that something you, you agree with or like disagree with or how do you feel about um building innovative startups on no code tools versus building something uh Technically, I, I fundamentally disagree with it because it's a it's a common uh, criticism that developers have used over the last six decades. So, for example, when when CPUs were first invented uh, uh, processors, you had to know how to send like electrical signals. Right. You had to know how to build the hardware to, to sort of get the computer to do stuff for you. Then we invented like assembly language or machine language, then assembly language and like assembly language programmers would say, uh, you know, when C was invented, which is higher order language that that didn't do everything that assembly language did, you could like make more performant code or like do more specific things. Assembly language programmers would say, well, if you don't learn assembly um, and you're only learning the C language, then you can't really do everything right at the lower level of abstraction because every abstraction is leaky. Um, and then that pattern continued. Then C++ was invented, right? And like uh, all the C programmers would be like, oh, well, this is something that if you don't understand the core things of like memory management or whatever, uh, then, you know, you're not going to be able to build like real things, right? And not going to be able to innovate. Uh, and then Java was invented that does like automatic memory management, so on and so forth, right? And then like AWS was invented and people would say, well, if you don't know how to rack your own computers and set up RAID, then what if this cloud provider fails? Uh, then you're not going to be able to set up your own server farm, right? Uh, and, and that's a common pattern that has kept repeating. But Overall, technology has matured to where these capabilities still provide you with all the all the power of the previous abstraction over time. Uh, that then you just have to you have a different uh, model for gluing it together. Uh, but it's still so flexible that you can build really really powerful things. And with no code, it's only going to expand like the kinds of things that you're going to be able to build with it to the point that software that you were able to build five years ago, like Airbnb or, or GitHub or whatever, you'd be completely able to build in no-code tools as if, uh, you know, um, 
to the same level of complexity. Maybe, yeah, at the edges, you know, people doing like really bleeding edge stuff like machine learning and, you know, like super custom algorithms, et cetera. Like, yes, there's always value to learning code, right? But there's as much value from everyone learning code as there is value from everyone learning machine code today. Every developer learning machine code or learning assembly. Like we're so far past that abstraction that we're like, um, using higher level primitives to solve those same kind of problems and letting computers and these sort of tools solve those problems for us that people had to manually solve before. So I think that it is a, you know, it's great if you can learn how to code. You're like that, that skill is always going to be very valuable and very uh, rewarded. Uh, but it is not something that should be made a prerequisite to creating software. Um, it's almost like saying, you know, if you can't build your own uh, guitar, you shouldn't be playing music, right? If you don't know how, um, you know, sound waves travel through air uh, and like in resonate in different environments uh, and ele elevations, then you shouldn't, like you're not a good uh, entertainer, right? Uh, so I think that this is, uh, you know, a valid concern and criticism or whatever. Uh, and it's, a, um, it's, it's an added benefit when you know code, but uh, it is going to become less and less of a uh, barrier to being able to build really, really powerful uh, and impactful things. I can just imagine what it was like when you were raising your A round. And I'm <laughs> sure you got that question in many variations. And I'm sure they did not expect an answer like that. But but you're totally you're totally right. And the fact that you are technical, you can like you can speak to what it's been like and no one can respond to that. You know, it's like, it's, I just can't imagine what it was like raising that, uh, raising, raising your A round. By the way, congratulations. That's Thank you. huge news. I actually want to shift the conversation a little bit uh, to, uh, um, to a, a little bit away from the no code stuff and more on like the business building, sure. what it's been like for you uh, since you've started Webflow. So I want to start with, um, I saw you were on Jason Calacanis's podcast and he kind of was explaining this new movement called the, the Pegasus movement. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's like better than the, the unicorn movement in that they, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not actually gonna, I don't fully remember, but can you kind of explain what is the, what is the Pegasus movement? Why are you a part of it? And like, why did you decide to go that route for Webflow versus the traditional unicorn movement? Yeah. So honestly, I, I know less about it. Uh, that that conversation with Jason was the only, you know, mention I've heard of it. Uh, but uh, I guess to, to summarize, uh, creating a unicorn um, sort of company just means that your company is worth a billion dollars or more uh, in terms of market cap. And there's many unnatural ways to do that. You know, you, we work as a unicorn uh, and it happened very quickly, but that doesn't mean that they have a, a strong core business, uh, right? And they're trying to figure that out right now. Uh, whereas Pegasus is, uh, I think Jason's definition of that was a company that, that grows, uh, in value and impact, uh, uh, based on strong, uh, business foundations. Like you're either profitable or break even and, uh, the core definition and you're still growing fast and you're kind of master of your own destiny in terms of like the company can make decisions, uh, on how to maximize their mission and vision, uh, based on that actual mission and vision and based on what the team wants to do rather than, you know, this constant, um, you know, fear of not being able to raise more money and, uh, you know, being reliant on investors, et cetera. So that's a, I think that's um, a much better approach for like mission driven and long-term oriented companies because building something um, 
like Webflow, requires many decades uh, for it to reach its full um, potential. Um, and sometimes, uh, like if if you start off with the assumption that this is going to be a super, you know, growth growth at all costs kind of kind of business, you you make decisions that are unnatural for the long term success of um, something like creating a visual a visual software development platform, um, because it just needs a lot more time. It needs a lot more. Um, you know, gradual, gradual growth, uh, rather than just optimizing for revenue, et cetera. Um, so for us, it's like, it was really always really important to, um, uh, operate in an independent way where we always, you know, we partner with, um, with investors to help us accelerate, uh, that journey, um, where they can help us, you know, hire, um, hire more people, help us with, with, uh, kind of, processes that you know we don't have to relearn again that they've seen be successful at other companies etc but they're there as a partner they're there as a um uh, an equal partner not like a boss not a you know uh, just the person that asks like when are we getting our money back or whatever they truly believe in um the the long-term vision of the company and and are there to support you to make sure that um that we reach it together. So that we've sort of used that as a, as a tool, uh, as a strategic tool to figure out how to make our mission happen faster rather than a necessity. And I think that's the, um, the definition of, um, you know, it's almost like you would take out a bank loan, right? When you, when you want to grow your business faster, because you know, you can invest, let's say a million dollars now that you might not have and turn that into $5 million, uh, versus, uh, kind of the more, um, I guess, farcical uh, uh, outliers where, you know, you're creating a business that's burning $2 in order to make $1 and there's no credible way to, to get that money back in the future. Um, so I, th I think that's the overall theme of the Pegasus uh, kind of label. Yeah, definitely. And when I, like twice, twice a year, I see, you know, TechCrunch's headlines when I see Y Combinator demo day, um, mm -hmm. and then the the it, it seems like it appears from the outside um, a good amount of those companies do the opposite of that. They raise as much as they can at the highest valuation because they can because they went through YC. Um, but you, uh, I'd like to kind of walk through your mindset on what what happened and what was it like when you went through YC. Um, I feel like there's a little bit of, I mean, I've never been through, so I can only imagine, but there's a little bit of like a pressure to raise. Everyone's like, you're a YC company, so everyone wants it. Like, what was it like back in 2012 going through YC and, and deciding to be a Pegasus and not just be a rapid growth company like everyone else? Yeah, to be honest, like we didn't make that decision that early on. We made it later when we realized that it was going to be harder to raise more money um, uh, if you know, we didn't kind of focus on profitability and uh, becoming break even, et cetera. Uh, but when we were going through YC, the uh, the mindset was definitely more around like, I think YC does a great job. Like they don't actually push you towards, you know, raise money at, you know, at all costs or whatever. And you'd be, you'd be surprised how hard it is for some companies to raise money after YC. It took us many months. It's like, um, and a lot of companies weren't even able to raise like investors still care about fundamentals. They still care about, you know, uh, looking into how healthily the company's growing and like what product market fit looks like or early signs of that look like. Um, so it wasn't sort of like this. Um, I, I think having gone to a lot of OIC like alumni demo days and, and looking into a lot of different decks and businesses, 
and talking to a lot of founders, like people do have this um, mindset of, you know, how do I, how do I make sure that um, the mission of this company is successful uh, and what are the tools I need to do to do that? And of course you want to um, uh, create a, enough runway that you can actually prove that. And it's very hard, especially for a business like Webflow to completely bootstrap the whole thing. Like I think it would have taken us another decade, uh, if not longer to uh, build the kind of team that would even to support our own. Um, you know, I had kids at the time when we were starting, we were operating without salaries for close to a year. Like that's a really hard life. Like we were borrowing against credit cards, like cashing out 401ks, um, you know, selling cars. Like that's not a, a sustainable way and even when we got into yc and um and started and released our product like there wasn't enough traction that we could actually pay our salaries uh so that is a uh, you know unless you're already rich or somehow have a way to get uh, get money from other people that'll like let you borrow it or whatever uh venture capital is a great um way to um save many 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 years to try to get the product market fit um and thankfully you know these um uh, terms now are so founder friendly that you don't have to give up control or you don't have to give up, um, you know, like people are taking a flyer on you as a team and as a product and as a um, kind of dream uh, to make real. Um, so I, you know, for us, we were kind of in that same mindset where we were thinking, what do we need to do to make sure that this company doesn't die <laughs> and, and taking, uh, you know, taking in some money as an investment to make sure that we could like, sustain paying rent and uh, uh kind of paying for mailchimp to send out emails and all the all the you know things that add up um buying sandwiches for lunch or whatever um that's just it's just another tool in the toolbox but i i think yc does a great job of making people think about like business fundamentals um and really thinking about what matters to users and delivering value not by you know, not measured as revenue, of course, that's like a good outcome as a trailing indicator, but by like making something that people need and that that help makes their life easier. Uh, so in that sense, I think it's a great program um, that's not doesn't have like this unhealthy mindset around growth. Although the, the, the thing that's most helpful is sort of the camaraderie of everyone caring about getting their idea out there. And when when you have so many people around you trying to do that same thing, get their ideas out into the world, it really is like provides a healthy amount of like pressure and uh, like peer, you, you want to impress your peers, you want to like be, a, um, you want to be part of, want to feel like the thing that you want to get out into the world is working. Uh, and it's just like that sort of ecosystem of everyone being in the same phase of growth, I guess, uh, is really helpful. Uh, but it's not like the partners, you know, uh, chewing you out every week saying like, you're not growing fast enough or whatever, or you need to raise a billion dollars at some, you know, uh, unreasonable evaluation or whatever. Uh, I think it's a lot more healthy than that. I feel like there's a big dissonance between how, like people outside of WC, like maybe journalists or media, like the way they may describe it versus how it actually is. Um, and one day, like maybe I'll get the chance to know, because um, actually the, the, the whole way I got into uh, startups in general back in 2015 with my first idea was I got a startup idea and the first piece of content I magically came across was Sam Altman's 2014 How to Start a Startup Stanford class. And that has been 
formative. Like that is, that was my first intro to startups and it's what caused me to be San Francisco minded, even though I live elsewhere. Um, It was just very interesting how if I would have first gotten something in Phoenix or somewhere not in the Bay, I would have probably had such a different mindset about startups, but um, I'm grateful that, that, that's, he did that class so I could learn, you know, I guess from the best. Um, By the way, that, that mindset is very much deserved. Like when people feel that, you know, VCs can force companies to do stuff that's unnatural that's against their like uh, values or against their users or whatever. Cause there's been plenty of examples where that's been like a confrontational or, you know, people come in and they like VCs feel like they own the place. Now they feel like the founders are working for them and you know, none of this would happen without them, et cetera. Uh, when it's not a true, that's not a true partnership. Uh, so there's plenty, you know, I don't want to say like hashtag not all VCs uh, or whatever, cause there's definitely amazing uh, venture capitalists that care about long-term outcomes uh, and being a force of good and, and like positive impact for the world uh, by creating these, you know, like foundational long lasting uh, impactful um, uh, socially conscious companies uh, that over over the long term generate way larger returns. Uh, you know, you look at Atlassian and like companies like that. Um, than you know, trying to push for maximizing growth at like every quarter or whatever. So, but there are enough bad examples that I can see why people uh, are seeing these bad examples and and saying like, okay, this this like venture capital industry must be uh, kind of like have those tendencies all over the place. Right. Uh, and you kind of, you have to find those, um, the the examples of things going better are usually not, you know, you don't like shout them to the world, uh, because it's usually the, the bad exceptions that end up being kind of outed to, to, uh, to the world. So I can see how people have that perspective, but, um, it really is magical when you find that like that partner that believes in you that that supports you as a person like sees you as a person sees the team as people uh and like really believes in the mission wants to know uh wants to be helpful to make that uh uh possible rather than like how can i make rich people slightly richer uh already right like that's not that shouldn't be the driving force definitely definitely and and i mean recently you you probably went on a very long process to find one of these partners for yourself and for Webflow. And you ended up um, landing on one and raising a, I, I believe around, was it $70 million? Uh, 72, yeah. $72 million for, for Webflow for your Series A after you've had this period of sustainable growth. Um, I, I'm just gonna, this is kind of probably a very basic question, but how do you know that like that, that's how much you should have raised more or less. And then also like, how do you know what to spend it on? It's so much money, at least from my perspective, I know nothing about the inside of the company. How do you just pick that number and what do you do with it? (laughs) Yeah, good. uh, This is a good, there's no easy answer to those questions. Those things sort of coalesce uh, based on a lot of different factors, uh, which would be super hard to go into right now. Uh, you know, based on the performance of the company and revenue and growth rate and um, uh, the the percentage the company is willing to sell and how much the uh, other investors that are already in the company, um, like how much they believe in it. It's There's so many, so many different factors there and what the company actually needs strategically to operate for the next five, 10 years, maybe. Um, and in terms of spending it, like we've, we've always operated in a way that is, um, there's just like this term of like default alive and default dead. Uh, if you're default alive, like you never have to go out and raise more money. 
and we've always been in that position since like 2015. Um, default debt is sort of like you have a plan to spend all that money and then you got to figure out how to get more, right? Uh, so we definitely don't have a plan to spend all that money. Like we, that is a, uh, a strategic uh, bet to make sure that we are um, prepared to, you know, weather any storms, to make um, like strategic investments into things that come up without ever having to worry about raising again. Sure, it might happen, but like the, um, the, the entire idea behind this uh, was to make sure we prepare the company for um, the very, very long term. So it's, it's not like we have, you know, I can give you a spreadsheet that says like, here's how I'm going to buy a hundred thousand Lamborghinis, uh, in across like two years or whatever. Um, so it's the, the plan is not to spend all that money. The plan is to still create, uh, keep running the company in a way that is uh, fundamentally sound and sustainable, um, and see that more as a strategic, um, uh, kind of safety net and and uh, the that gives us the ability to invest if opportunities come up, like whether it's like acquisitions or or uh, teams that we need to spin up to take advantage of some opportunity that pops up. So uh, it's kind of there as a um, for for that capacity. Definitely, it's it's cool to understand what goes into thinking about the, the money. How it's not just a plan to spend it all. It's it's a lot more strategic than that. So that's mm -hmm. cool. So we have a, a couple more questions, a little more time. Um, and I want to finish it off with a couple of questions that I have from Twitter. I tweeted out right before we, uh, right before we hopped on. Does anyone have any questions? You were tweeted, so thank you. I got some awesome questions. So we're just going to do a little bit of a rapid fire. Um, what are, this is from KP. Uh, what are your three favorite daily routines that you, uh, that you do, daily or weekly routines that you have? Ooh, uh, weekly, I go on dates with my daughters. Uh, sometimes we skip a week, but that's my favorite thing um, individually. So not with both of them, like uh, I'll uh, flip flop between weeks. So one weekend will be with one, another weekend will be with another and they get to pick what we do. Uh, so that's definitely my favorite. In terms of like daily rituals, I honestly don't, I've kind of uh, lopsided between having very rigid ones where, you know, I'd always wake up at 4.30 in the morning and always do this, uh, you know, one hour of what I called MIT time, most important task time. Um, and it was so rigid that it wasn't enjoyable. Um, and I, I'd say my, my, one of my rituals right now, cause I, I drive to work. Uh, so it's listening to podcasts. Um, and I kind of flip them between things that are entertaining to things that are informative so that I don't, I'm not always in, you know, trying to absorb information mode. Um, and then, you know, occasionally I'll switch into audiobooks and also I'll flip those between fiction and nonfiction so that it's not, uh, I don't always have like this overwhelming feeling of like, I'm not learning enough or whatever. I just, sometimes you just want to turn your brain off and be entertained. Definitely know that feeling. Uh, so we have a question from Jeff. Uh, is Webflow taking any initiative to promote teaching Webflow in high school at all, um, or college, or elementary school? Um, yeah, what kind of how is it involved with with school at the moment? Um, right now, it's pretty light. Uh, we do have a Webflow for education and for students. Um, there's like a discount, and we've partnered with teachers to uh, use it for free in certain classrooms. Uh, but this is a major theme that came up in our last uh, all company offsite. Um, in August and something that is a um, that we're really thinking through on our education and our community team that's going to be probably a major theme in 2020. 
All right, I got a, a couple more. Then I'll have. Then it's the final one. Um, wh- <laughs> when will you be? This is from it's Nick. I believe it's at it's Nick. When will you be able to remake Webflow using Webflow? <laughs> Ooh, um, at least the middle of next year. No, just kidding. It's it's probably going to be a long, long time uh, before no-go tools get to that level of complexity. That is definitely not the standard that we're you know shooting for because there's literally like two or three companies that would want to build something like Webflow and organizing around that use case is probably not a great, because uh, it'll be way too complex. And that, in that case, using code is still the best tool for the job. Uh, but, you know, give it 10 years and that might be a totally different answer. That's exciting times. Uh, one more from me, uh, and then and then the, the the same one that we always ask to finish it out. This one is probably one of the hardest hitting questions that you've ever gotten, even out of, out of every investor meeting. So get ready. You tweeted recently that you spend one hundred twenty five thousand dollars a month on tacos. Can you please explain how this works? Um. Uh. With the caveat aside that 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 whole thing is a massive joke, <laughs> yeah. um, somebody actually did do an analysis of like you know for a company that is 150 people, if you do tacos, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, that's actually a reasonable uh, a reasonable amount of money to spend on tacos. Uh, but we do not spend that much on tacos. It was a uh, if you did uh, here here's my assumption. If you did, I bet you would up your application in, intake to like. Uh-huh. By, by I don't know by by fifty or a hundred or two hundred percent because tacos are like a fan especially of of my generation and Gen uh-huh. Z we love tacos so just putting that out yep. there for your recruiting knowledge See, my that that would have sounded seven years ago like ding 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 great idea and then now my brain goes into well what's the healthcare cost of people eating tacos day in and day out and is that is that going to cost us more than one hundred twenty five thousand dollars. <laughs> That's uh, funny. Yeah. That's funny. Cool. Well, we I have one last question. It's the same question I always ended up with. Uh, thank you again for coming on to the podcast. Awesome conversation. My, my last question is, you are building Webflow and you kind of planted the flag in the ground to like lead this no code movement. And that's a big responsibility. That's going to take a lot of work and you're going to need some help along the way. And you got a lot of people listening to this podcast who want to help. They're listening because they follow you. They like Webflow. Um, mm-hmm. So they're almost like ready to, to help. So my question for you is what is a way that the forward thinking founder community can help you or help Webflow further along the mission of what you're trying to accomplish? Oh, that's, thank you for asking that question. Um, I think it's, primarily helping to drive this uh, mindset change. Because when founders see how much more effective their marketing teams, their product design teams, their uh, you know, prototyping teams can be uh, without uh, having to have like, even developer, even development teams. Like we have a lot of developers on our own team who are using Webflow to prototype uh, certain solutions and then kind of uh, like taking it to our code base. Uh, it's, it's very helpful when, when founders sort of d- dive into the possibilities of this and see how they can uh, make their own teams more effective. That only perpetuates this, this mindset that, yes, more is possible. And that will, will drive uh, more demand on tools like Webflow to become even better. Uh, 
um, because that's the thing that helps us uh, create you know more powerful tools, more easy to use tools, more uh, more use cases, more sort of like verticals and and more capability. Um, it's when there's like you know people are hungry for it because you need to solve business problems with it. Uh, but if the if we don't change that mindset that you can only do real things with develop with you know text based developers, it's it's not only worse for all of these businesses, right? We have you know more than half of YC uh, startups now when they build their website they're using Webflow because it's just a massive waste of uh, technical co-founders' time to be building you know like. Uh, writing CSS style sheets and, and HTML like layouts or whatever, or setting up some sort of static site generator. Um, it just means that you can focus on on more important problems. And I think that uh, founders should um, like not only to help their own businesses, but to uh, sort of lift the entire tech industry uh, to to encourage others to explore these tools uh, because it's a you know it's a fundamentally more accessible technology when it comes to taking advantage of the power of the internet because when you're saying that you don't have to be one of the one out of 400 people on earth that knows how to write code in order to create software but really anyone who wants to dive in and spend a few weeks like learning this stuff can actually do it uh, and maybe right now it's a small subset of software but like it's it's growing rapidly um, then overall the tech industry can get uh, grow a lot faster and and we can just uh, do a lot more together i think um so yeah i don't see a downside to sort of spreading that uh spreading that message that you don't always need code to build software all right you all heard it here spread the word vlad thank you so much for coming on to the podcast i really enjoyed the conversation and i'm looking forward to the next decade of what you're going to do with webflip awesome thank you so much for having me matt i really appreciate it Okay, I hope you all enjoyed that episode, uh, and I hope you learned a ton. And if you're not inspired to get out there and start building some apps without code, then I don't know what you're doing. Um, before you you leave, we'll go on to your next podcast or get out of the car, wherever you are. I just want to make one last note that the Angel Investor Program for Forward Thinking Founders is, is, is live, and if you just got you know a good amount of value from that podcast. I do daily podcasts, so it's that times thirty every single month. Um, and on the, if you you know you want to you want to kind of give back for that, or you want to join the community that powers that, um, I please suggest becoming an angel investor in Forward Thinking Founders. It's ten dollars a month or a hundred dollars a year. If you do want to support and get access to the online community, the in-person events, the ad-free content, and the premium content, check out glow.fm slash f20r. That's G-L-O-W dot F-M slash F20R. Thank you so much for the support. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I'll see you tomorrow. Cheers.